Welcome to Season 3 of Game Design Unboxed on the No Direction Network. Daniel Reynolds talks to tabletop game designers about the games they've made. Together, they unbox how the game went from inspiration to publication. Thank you for joining me, Danielle, for Game Design Unboxed Inspiration to Publication, Episode 62, Deadly Dowagers. Today, we are joined by Sarah Ship, the designer of this game, as well as a blog creator for a blog called Ship Board Games, where she talks about board game design theory from a fine arts perspective. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Of course. So how did you get into game design to begin with? Oh, man. I was just messing around with an RPG idea based on like how I wanted an indie RPG to work and it didn't work that way. And then I abandoned it for three years. And then I was watching YouTube videos about board games and I suddenly thought, hey, maybe that idea could be a board game. And then it, like most first designs, it didn't go anywhere and I shelved it. (laughs) But got really into board game design and started designing another game that eventually turned into Deadly Dowagers. Oh, really? So your second idea is what became published? Yes. Oh, that's so awesome. Has anything happened with the first one? No, um, it was bigger and more outside of the games I actually like to play. So, I mean, there, there's a hint. Don't start designing games that are outside of what you would normally like to play as your first game, because you're not going to know enough to be able to design it. That is so funny. So the first game ever had signed was my attempt at creating a trick-taking game that I'd enjoy because I hated trick-taking games. And I designed my way out of it being a trick-taking game as development went on. So I, I kind of agree with that. Probably yeah. not the best move. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. All right. Well, then for anyone who hasn't played your game, Deadly Dowagers, how do you play the game? It's a pick and pass drafting tableau builder with some a little bit of an engine building feel, but I describe it as tableau refreshing instead of engine building because it's not quite the same feel. So every round you're going to be drafting cards. It's and then putting them into a tableau in that way feels a lot like seven wonders. Um, But that's and it, it that also is going to feel very much like other games where you're building up possessions or city districts or what have you. Um, however, eventually in Deadly Dowagers, you run out of money and you can't earn income on what is in front of you because you're a woman in the Victorian era. So you have to fold in your business dealings with settling your husband's affairs when he unfortunately dies. And you decide when when he unfortunately dies. So, um, so then there's a phase that's sort of kind of this optional phase at the end of rounds where if you sometimes literally pull the trigger, uh, you will settle your husband's affairs and all of your other business stuff folded into that and get money. And then you can start to build up stuff again, marry again. And the first person who marries the Duke wins. 
I'm not going to lie. I remember a few years back when I, I don't know if it was like a board game broads like meet thing, but you mentioned this game and the theme of just like marriage, murder and money and just like the idea of it. I was like, this is so fascinating and just like it's such a cool theme. And of course, like satirical, we're not actually hoping that people get murdered or whatever. Well, I'm not, but I like it. I think it's a really interesting idea. And like, as I've seen that it's now officially coming out and people can play it, it looks very fascinating. Um, Where did the inspiration for the theme come from? So that's the really funny part because it's probably going to strike a lot of people as a theme-first game, but it's not exactly what happened. I started designing a game where a card game where I wanted to explore the idea of how the aristocracy built their wealth. And I called it Inheritance, and it was very dry and boring, multi-generational. This guy got to the farthest point he could get, and then he died, and then, then, and then his son, you know gets as wealthy and as powerful as he can get, then he dies. And so just theme, playing like the long game. <laughs> yeah. The, playing more than one person. And then if you want to give pe- players the feeling of like decisions that matter, they you need to kind of decide when your family member dies. That kind of feels like murder. And playing more than one person doesn't have the same emotional resonance as playing one character the whole game, especially in a really short game. How can I make it so that it's one person who is inheriting multiple times, but it's not like from your uncle twice removed type of stuff where it's increasingly farther fetched that you would actually be receiving an inheritance. How can I possibly make that? Oh no. (laughs) Oh no. (laughs) Marriage. The game's going to be called Deadly Dowagers. I have to go redesign a whole bunch of stuff right now. And that's how it happened. It was just me that thinking so about funny. how to make the game make more sense and work better. And then I spent months trying to think of a better theme and I couldn't. I mean, I personally enjoy the uniqueness of the theme. <laughs> it is... Yeah, I would say it's definitely more interesting to play as a single character trying to like move up in the world, sadly, when you don't have a lot to start with. But I guess, yeah, so here, talk about setup. Like, how do you set up this Victorian woman with their initial husband? Like, what does that look like for you as a player in the game? So originally, you got to you got your starting income, which is five crowns, five money, and then you decide it's kind of like how wingspan has you trade off how much food you keep versus how many cards you get. Uh, You decide what your first husband is going to be. And if they have a dowry, you have to pay that dowry out of the money that you get. Um, And originally that was all you got, but we decided to give the women a leg up because of the way the cards were milling through the deck. So now In the published version, you start with two plots of farmland and five money that your dead parents have left you as your initial inheritance. And then you pick your first husband. And that's what you start the game with uh, before you start drafting your first hand of cards. And that is where a lot of the interesting emotional tension comes from in the game is that you start with a husband before you start playing 
That's so interesting. And so Uh some of these husbands, they can basically be upgraded or promoted and some can't. How does that work with gameplay? Yeah, uh, the right now there's only two uh, husband career types that can be promoted. um, Maybe in the future, if there's another version or an expansion or something, who knows, uh, there would be more different types. But the when you get to the phase where you decide, am I going to kill my husband? Am I going to get married again? That there's a phase every round and you decide whether or not you're going to do anything in that phase. You... Um, you can also decide if you're married to one of those husbands, am I going to pay the necessary money to help my husband get promoted? And it's sort of like thematically, are you buying a new dress, throwing a party to impress your husband's boss to help him get promoted? That's why it costs money. Okay. I was curious. Yeah. Or if you're like sending them to college or something. No. And when they get promoted, then you have a, a, better inheritance when they die because they were wealthier. They had a bigger salary. That's so interesting. So how many times can they be promoted or upgraded or whatever you call it in your game? Twice. Uh, The curate can become a, oh, geez, curate, reverend, bishop, and then the professor goes professor, dean, chancellor. And those are the two, the husband types that can get promoted. And as far as crowns or money, the Duke is worth how much? Like how much is he looking for, for his beautiful future bride? He has a minimum requirement of a 120 crown dowry and you start with five. (laughs) Oh my God. So how many husbands on average are conveniently um moved out of the picture before you can get to the duke (laughs) i don't Uh, even know how to say like murdered (laughs) you you bury three to four there is one card in the deck that is natural causes uh it is incredibly unlikely that you would be able to get that card three to four times in a game so if you want to win Maybe you'll get lucky and only have to murder a couple times, but you you will have to murder your husband. Okay, so walk me through that decision. Like, what are you doing mechanically? It's it's the best decision in the game. It it is where the game lies, uh, and everything else is sort of like, this is what other games do to help you make money. But you don't get to make money that way like in other games. Here's the decision. Are you killing your husband? So going back to what I said before, where the, all the emotion is the fact that you start with a husband before the game starts, you have this loss aversion endowment effect happening because that was given to you, basically. I mean, you chose it, but you start the game with that. That's your resource. And it's thematically a husband. And that's you know, in, in most people's heads, this is someone I chose to get married to, therefore I love them. And so it's very hard to make that decision at first, and then it's a lot easier after the first time. Um, but 
so basically what happens when everyone plays is you start out and you're just playing a normal board game and then you run out of money and realize that you have to commit murder in order to keep playing the game. And then you have a difficult decision, but you make it. Very few people choose to just not play the game. Um, and then after that, you start murdering your husbands faster and faster <laughs> to get more and more money to try and win the race. Okay, so then, so once I buried the first husband, how am I drafting my second husband? Is it just, is there like a row of cards out and then I'm putting the money forth? Yeah, so um, you're drafting cause of death cards and remarry cards. So that's kind of the main way that you're going to kill a husband and get married with as actions. But then the husbands are in the husband market, um, you know, laid out kind of like the cards in dominion where you can see all of the types and you know how much they cost Uh, there. They do have some limited, like there's finite types of each husband. So it is possible to run out at higher player counts. Um, Not, typically a huge issue though. And so when you play a remarry card and you're not married, uh, you can then also spend the money for the dowry of your chosen husband and put them down next to your little player board as a part of your tableau. And then when, when you kill your husband, you flip the card over and there's a little gravestone on the back and you start building a secondary tableau that is your husband's cemetery. So interesting. And you said originally that you start with two plots of land. Do you gain income as you go, regardless of being married or not? Yeah, so you are you buy more land or mills or estates and you can populate them with renters and there's some other stuff. Um, and you can swap in and out the land, but you don't get income each round. There's a few husband powers that can give you income while they're still alive, but not consistently. It's, um, based on like what cards you draw or draft rather. Um, and there's also the affair cards in the game where if you play in a spicy (laughs) <laughs> okay, I love what the the publisher has done because I gave them almost no art direction and they came back with like exactly what I meant. Like we were on the same page. The affair card illustration is two gloved hands on top of each other on a piano. Oh it's my god, that's so funny. Perfect. Uh but yeah, you you gain 5 money for in exchange for two infamy and infamy is the n- negative track that you don't really want to go up, but you do every time you marry a working class husband or kill a husband, um, or have an affair. And if you have, if your infamy gets too high, certain nobles won't marry you. Interesting. I was wondering, yeah, about the balancing of the infamy and the inheritance and how that worked while developing the game. Yeah, it's, Honestly, some of the most math that I've ever done in game design to date, because I just don't do it very often in terms of what's the correct amount of dowry, what's the correct amount of inheritance, um, the correct amount of infamy toleration was a little more 
by feel. It's pretty much where I want it because you want a low range that players can play in and then like a higher range that if you're playing riskier, you can end up in, but you can come back from and some astute people have already noticed that the infamy track seems pretty long, even taking that into account. And to that, I say, yes, maybe in the future, something will happen with that. But that's like, there's, you know, as we're talking, the game's been out for less than 48 hours. This comes out later. So when I, when I say maybe, I mean, hard, maybe (laughs) like, that that's there's nothing in the works right now, but it was designed so that if there was an opportunity, there's space to play around already in the base box. Um, but yeah, it, it does. It comes across a little confusing at first. Cause you're like, there's no way I'm ever going to get up to 18 infamy. A, I would lose the game and B, why would I want to do that? Well, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens. <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds like you kind of have to get up a little bit and make some hard decisions in order to gain money. So that's kind of fun that you have the wiggle room to play in that area and see how much you could push it. I have a feeling I would definitely be pushing it pretty hard. And I've definitely seen people get up that high. And that's the other thing about this game is there was a lot of trade-offs for making it as strategic as possible with a lot of gamerly sensibilities, but making it as welcoming as possible and keeping it as light as is reasonable to be more accessible to people who just see it on the shelves and go, that's a really cool theme. Um, And I don't think I fully succeeded. I, I actually think that there's a few things that are too complicated um, and that I'm not necessarily like, winning brownie points in the strategic category for those things. So it's not much of a trade-off, but I I got pretty close to what we were going for. As a result, there was some stuff late in the development that I was getting really excited about that kind of ended on the cutting room floor, which is why I'm kind of like, I hope to revisit this world someday because I do have more ideas. Okay. Yeah. So how was like playtesting and development? Like what kind of changes happened beyond, of course, the theme? Oh man, I've, I went through so many iterations where it was like two to five, two to six, and then I cut it down to two to four to try and get out all the unnecessary cards and really work on balance. And then I, um, while I was pitching it to the publisher and they were like, yeah, but we liked the initial pitch of the higher player count. And I said, I know I'm working on it. So then I, I I took stuff out and added it back in, in a way that made more sense. Um, I really, I don't know that it's the healthiest trait to have, but I love pitching to publishers as a form of playtesting because they give some of the best feedback. Um, but you, you got to balance that out with not wasting their time. But it, 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 it really helped to focus the direction that I was going in. And then the pandemic hit and playtesting got very painful. I was doing a lot of the final playtests with my family. I mailed a copy to some friends and watched them play it over Zoom. Um. So it, 
it went through a lot of different versions and a lot of ups and downs in terms of trying to just nail down what would actually work all while I'm trying to teach myself game design because I, when I started, I really didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. How did you end up finding the publisher Tabletop Tycoon? I went online and made a list of all the publishers that were going to be at BGG Con 2019. And then I started pitching to the ones that had submission links that also seemed to have openings in their catalogs for a drafting game. And then I didn't end up actually talking to them at the convention, which was really funny. Uh, but I heard back from them after the fact and they were interested in seeing some revisions before they committed, um, which from a first time designer makes sense. I, I know a lot of more experienced designers that would, uh, frump their mouths a little bit at that, but I, I thought it, it made sense under the circumstances. And then it wasn't until we were fully in lockdown before I had signed a contract, which again, made life a little bit more complicated. What changes were they looking for initially before they were on board? A lot of stuff that I just needed to finish anyway, but they also, in terms of like the player count, I'm trying to remember because um, it, it's been several years now. It, it was it was some specific um, types of things that they wanted in terms of balance. And I, I, I have much clearer memories of after we signed the contract, working on all the thematic all details. But I don't. Yeah. I, I, this was. This was very much like happening in 2020. So my memory is a little shoddy as I'm sure all of ours are. But after we signed the contract, I did a lot of theme work because they gave me first pass. So like I named all the characters in the game. I didn't write all the flavor text, but I wrote the the bios for the women and I wrote the short story in the rule book. And then I came up with names for the characters uh, I named um, almost all of the um, the weapons and the, I named all the charities. But when I say I named, in those cases, they're all historical. So I did a lot of historical research and then the publisher did even more historical research. So there's, it's not a historical game. It's not. I consider it alternate history. But there's a lot of historical details and sensibilities baked in. And I'm very proud of that. That is really cool. I was going to say, so you don't have any like chads or something in there, just as like a dig at an X or something? <laughs> no, um, that the names are actually an Easter egg. And I don't know if anyone's ever going to put it together. So I don't know that I want to reveal it, but all the names... All the names of all the husbands yeah. and all the women are from the same source. That's all I'm going to say. Um, okay. Okay. 
<laughs> I don't want to. I'm. I'm gonna start. I'm not gonna guess. I'm not gonna guess. I'll let people try to figure it out, and uh, I'll, I'll also I'll, try to figure it out. I'll, I mean, I'll tell you after we're done recording. But I would love right, it for I'm some people to, cool. to start searching for some of the Easter eggs. I will say that uh, as I was doing this research, I discovered how many women in the Victorian era were serial murderers of their husbands, but they weren't going for inheritance that will help them marry a nobleman they were get cashing in on life insurance policies which i guess life insurance was fairly new then probably um but i'm not a historian don't don't at me um but the problem with life insurance is that it suffers from what's known as the Tiffany problem, where it's true historically, but it sounds anachronistic. So we we stuck with inheritance. I think I like, yeah, I enjoy inheritance a little bit more, but that is pretty funny. Yeah, I accidentally designed some true to life stuff that I did not mean to, but I also didn't set out to make a kill your husband game. It was just the only thing that made sense. Also, oh, yeah. <laughs> also, also came up with this theme right after getting home from my honeymoon. And we're about to celebrate um, not not long after this podcast comes out, like a month later, we're going to celebrate our five year anniversary. So, oh, congratulations. I love yeah. that for you, too. Yeah, my, my husband is very secure in being married to me. No one needs to be worried. He likes my game. He's it's alive and fine. well. Doesn't live in the basement. No, just kidding. <laughs> yeah, no, it's 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 funny, but also it's fine. <laughs> nah, I think the world needs more interesting themes out there anyway. And plus, like, it's all in good humor. And I enjoy oh, yeah. the historical context because, yeah, I mean, honestly, back then there wasn't a lot of ways to move up in the world, which... Unfortunately, this is just one of the ways that a few women did find worked for them. Yeah, I I think it's really more of a metaphor. And a lot of the women that play it and really enjoy the cathartic element of it will also tell you, no, it's a metaphor. Um, they So I, I was really pleased that the people that enjoy it the most seem to be the ones that really get it. Because you don't want the people that like it for the wrong reasons to be the ones that enjoy it the most. That's fair. I didn't even think about it that way. Fair and, enough. And there, and there was, you know, that was an aspect of playtesting was trying to hit the right notes thematically to make sure that the intention wasn't lost. Because this is not meant to be shock and awe type of theme that's, you know that is attention grabbing but nothing else it's it's more satire than anything else but satire is really hard to do and there's not that many board games that pull it off so um yeah just i'm waiting to see what the general consensus is going to be if i pulled it off because i think i did okay but i'm also biased that's fair. But hey, I mean, you're right. I'm trying to think of like other games that have a satirical element to it. And I really can't think off the top of my head of any. I'm sure there are. There has to be. There are. I, I think the best example of, of a game that is obviously satire in its inception is Campaign for North Africa. But other people will jump in with games like Junta and Snake Oil and stuff like that, which which 
fair to a point, and I could get into like really into the weeds because I recently wrote about satire on my blog on why I think the games like that are more just surface level satire and don't have the same punchiness that like literary satire does. Um, but I, I won't do that here because we don't have the time. Yep, I was going to say. But also, I mean, you didn't initially set out to make this game that's like incredibly thematic, but that's kind of what ended up happening for your first game. How do you feel now that it's like starting to come out? I mean, I, it's, as of recording, it's been out for less than 48 hours, but I'm really pleased that there are people that already are talking about it who seem to really get it. And so that's, that's really gratifying. Um, I'm really a little nervous for my next game because it's not going to be as thematic at all. I designed it in like two weeks in, in lockdown and then pawned it off on a publisher as soon as I could, because I was like, this is a weird experimental thing. Oh, you're interested in developing it. Here you go. You can have it. Um, and so it's the danger of setting expectations and not following through where it's, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not ever going to have a theme that's as punchy, as good, in my opinion, as Deadly Dowagers. So instead, I'm just going to try and get better at every other aspect of design. And in that way, I'm probably doing things backwards from a lot of designers. But that's just my background is theater and literature to an extent. Um, And that's really, those were my strengths going in, whereas math and game mechanics were things I've had to learn along the way. (laughs) That totally makes sense. I mean, that was me when I first started out. I made a bunch of flashcards on mechanics and the math. It's like, I'm, I always joke, I'm good at guesstimating, but typically I hire on a developer that can check my math and it's pretty close. I'm surprised how much like feel can go a certain length of the way, but yeah, I get you. I'm totally there with you. So how long in total do you think it took between like the initial inspiration of the game all the way to it now being released about 48 hours ago? Uh, just shy of five years. Uh, and, and I know that because yeah. I, I started developing it right before I got married. And so maybe it's a closer to four and a half. Um, Cause this is, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't remember exactly when I started. So four and three quarters, we'll say. Split the difference. But, okay, yeah. sounds good. And what was your favorite and least favorite part of that experience of that particular design? I love introducing the game to people. I love watching people play. It is just a fascinating psychological sociological experiment for me it's it's so much fun because everybody relates to it a little bit differently um especially if you've ever had a bad interaction with a man in power regardless of your gender identity or i was gonna say what that happens i'm just kidding (laughs) so surprising yeah like i said the game's a metaphor um and so a lot of people relate to that aspect of it. And then a lot of people who 
are that aspect of it really enjoy pretending to be a baroness or a countess they they enjoy the sillier side of it and all of those things are a part of the game and so it's not like it's invalid it's just very funny to watch the different people get attached to different parts of it um least favorite oh man Probably the longer wait than was maybe going to be necessary due to the whole global shipping crisis uh, basically caused every company to get somewhere between a couple months and a couple years behind on their publishing cycles. And I don't have any direct knowledge of how behind... Uh, my game necessarily was or was not, but it, it, I was panicking the whole time until the game got released or until I was told the game was going about to get released. I was just, is it, is it, is it going to happen? Is it going to happen? I don't know. <laughs> Be- yeah. Because there's this crisis and I don't know. <laughs> I totally feel you. The first game I ever had signed still has not come out. And it's because of COVID and just like it screwed up a lot for a small publisher. And I've now had five games come out. And I still haven't even started artwork on the initial game that was ever signed in my career. So it's very fascinating. Yeah, it's definitely been a very topsy-turvy time. And I... You know, looking back on, I've only really been doing this for less than five years, but three of those were in really extreme pandemic-y times. And, you know, we're only in like slightly less extreme pandemic-y times now. That's not the fir- what the first five years looked like for designers that have been doing this for seven, eight years or longer. And so it's just, a, it's a very different world in and experience. And in some ways, like in some ways, the hobby's doing great. It's recovering. We're going to see market fluctuations for a while, but board games aren't going anywhere. But in some ways, it's it has been a lot more dispiriting, I think, for new designers. And I've definitely felt that while also feeling plugged in enough and supported enough by the community that I was able to make it through without getting discouraged. But like, I I know so many people that it's just been so hard. Yeah, it's been especially difficult with a lot of publishers just kind of disappearing because Mm -hmm. of COVID or getting bought over or needing to cut how many games they put out in a year, which just means like, less designs are getting signed and you have actually a few of the like larger ones that are growing like Funko that's just like they're hiring on like staff designers yeah um so then they're not going to be taking outside pitches and it's just like a whole mishmash of a bunch of different things which makes it 
definitely harder when you are a first-time designer because you're fresh and new. And then if you're a first-time designer signed with a newer publisher or a smaller publisher that typically doesn't have their own developers, like I personally have learned now that I much prefer to have a game signed with someone who has their own development team or is going to have like hire someone to develop and not just have it all put on me. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) I feel like that's the dream, but that can be, that takes some insider knowledge to a degree, not a lot, but to a degree to find out who those publishers are and then develop relationships with the people you want to work with. And I think the big thing of why it is so much harder was, you know, the years we didn't have conventions and not being able to as easily meet the people that you need to meet in order to gain a better understanding and that's where we're starting to come out the other side where you can actually meet people. Oh, for sure. I feel like one good avenue for designers, especially newer designers, is going through like the unpub speed pitching events because mm. I know that we really try to bring newer designers in and designers that have a harder time like reaching out to publishers for sure because I'm an extrovert. So I will talk to anybody, but not everyone is like that. And it makes it very difficult, but it's cool that we had at least like through the pandemic, a lot of those like virtual uh, speed pitching events, which did actually land a few publishers, some games from newer designers. Yeah, it's, it's not been all negative for sure. And there's been a lot of stuff like that that's come out of it that I'm really appreciative of. Um, It's just the level of stress that we had for a few years I noticed that in um, women and non-binary spaces, there was a lot less activity online after the pandemic started than before the pandemic, even though everything had moved online. And I think we're not going to see a return to form in those numbers for a little bit longer and I think that needs to uh, and that's probably true of other marginalized groups too Uh, anybody who's historically paid less it's going to take them longer to have the funds and energy to be as present as they were prior and that's something that weighs on my mind a lot that is very true I mean I know that I immediately messaged you because on International Women's Day, a video went out by Gnarly Carly that had urinized games, so her story and Deadly Dowagers attached to it. And I immediately from listening to it, I was like, wait a second, Sarah's game got signed. Like I didn't even realize your game had gotten signed until that played. I clicked on the link and I saw your name and I was like, oh my God. And I immediately messaged you and sent you the link of the video because I was just so excited to see another a uh, female's name out there. And also just, it was a pretty funny video in general, just the oh, comparison okay. of our two games. It's a great way to celebrate uh, Women's mm-hmm. History Month. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> that was a great review. I I gotta say, her story bums me out a little bit because there's 16 women on the cover and I've been sitting on Deadly Dowagers for over a year now knowing the cover art was going to be six women on the cover. And I was so proud of that. And then here comes her story. Gotta be better. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Not better. Just great how many women's faces. Because I was on a panel and I was told that there's more sheep on board game covers than there are women. And I'm like, what? No. And I 
It's true. I'm hoping it's less true because we definitely added a lot of faces between our two games. So high five, yeah. digital high five. <laughs> but yes. Oh my God. It's so crazy. Well, do you have any advice then to like a new fresh designer? Oh man. Um, I think like my best advice is to do some research on your own first before you start asking other people questions and try and teach yourself as much as you can so that your questions will be more fruitful and easier to answer at, at the, at minimum search forums for the question you're asking before you ask it to see if it's already been answered. Um, not because it's a bad to ask questions because it's not, but back when I knew what back when I didn't know what worker placement was there was no way for me to ask useful questions of people who were already experienced and knew what they were doing it took a lot of learning to get to the point where I could ask questions where the answers were actually useful to me and I think that you know being inquisitive and constantly trying to learn is the best approach and that'll get you 80 90 percent of the way there probably because there's so many resources out there i think that's great advice i know that when i first started in the hobby i wanted to play as many games as i possibly could but i didn't own many so i tried to join like some of those local meetups and stuff in the Chicago area. And that was kind of the way that gatekeeping happened when Mm. I was trying to enter. And it was a bunch of like middle-aged white guys, you know, and I have a lot of friends that are middle-aged white guys and I'm not saying all are bad, but specifically the groups I went to use like mechanic names that I didn't know because I was new, even though I technically had played games, I just, or played games with those mechanics, but I didn't know the words. And so one of the easiest things I did was just, I went on board game geek and like, looked up all the mechanics and looked up the popular games of those mechanics. And I like watched videos or I read the rule books or I played the games. And it's like, those are different steps that you can decide to do for yourself. um, I was going to get a little more informed. I was going to say play, uh, play games is what people always say, but watching playthroughs because there's thousands of games and it's hard to play all of them. It's okay to watch a playthrough of El Grande instead of playing it. That's fine. Um, or whatever game that you need to learn more about in order to help your own design journey. Um, I, I'm a big fan, highly utilize reviews, rules, tutorials, and playthroughs for research and learning purposes. Um, I, I don't know that I mentioned this when I was talking about how I got started, but while I was designing Deadly Dowager's I spent six months reading through board game design blogs and watching videos. Like I I literally did a self-directed game design course for six months for myself. Um, And so there's a lot you can do for free that's available online. That is awesome. Yeah, I feel like that's really the best way to learn. Um, and so your design journey is continuing. Do you have any games that you can talk about that people should be looking out for? Yeah, so there's a landing page for Monsters Love Vegas uh, Kickstarter pre-launch page. Monsters Love Vegas! Exclamation point. 
Um, that is the game I designed in lockdown and it's, I think it's next year is when it's in the queue to kickstart because there's, they're doing another, there's a a boutique publisher that does small, weird little experimental games and mine will be the, the weirdest of all of them, both in theme that the the publisher rethemed it. So it's going to be a weird theme and, and it's weird mechanically. Um, so that should be kickstarted next year. Um, and then game wise, I've got a game that I think is really, really good that I just need to wrap up pitch materials for and start like seriously pounding the pavement because I think it's really, really good. But otherwise I don't have anything. I don't, I don't even have anything I can't talk about. It's two things I can talk about and I need to get on it now that it's easier to get stuff play tested and pitched. Um, and, and some other stuff, there is some stuff, but I don't know when it's going to be announced. So we'll see. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. No, I like that. Um, I definitely should probably learn to focus on less games. I have too many games I'm working on, but hopefully are you going to be at some conventions in the future pitching that new, really good idea? I'm definitely going to be at BGG Con, which typically isn't a pitching convention. I might go to PAX West. I don't know yet. Um, This year's been a weird year for me, so uh, we'll see. But I am looking at, like, going through online submissions because that's how I did my other two games. And it's – I've had very – good in-person pitches that did not result in contracts. Uh, that's there's Those can still be successes in their own ways, but so far, the games that I've signed contracts for have been through digital means, so I'm not, not discounting the digital submissions. Honestly, I like hearing that because I hear it a lot less in the recordings that I've done because, I mean, we're on episode 62, and I would say majority of people, it was through like personal interaction with pitching. So it's, it's nice. See, like it does work. There's a lot of ways, a lot of avenues to get in your game published. Yep. Well, cool. All right. Well then for my last question, I'd like to know if you were the designer of any game that you did not design, which game would you choose for it to be? Oh, I wish I had designed canvas because it is exactly my design sensibilities. And I'm really upset that I didn't design it. That's so funny. I recorded an episode with Road to Infamy Games about Canvas, and it's also hanging behind me. You can't see because it's just our voices, but it is a really pretty game. And it is very simplistic and has that gorgeous, transparent cards with the beautiful artwork. Completely agree. It's a great yeah. game. Strong hook, thematic. Players want to play it for a number of different reasons. Like, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm super jealous that that game exists and I wasn't involved in any way. <laughs> That's so funny. Well, awesome. Okay, uh, then thank you for joining us for this episode of Game Design Unboxed, Inspiration to Publication, Episode 62, Deadly Dowagers. And thanks again, Sarah, for joining. For anyone trying to find you, where is the best place to be reached? Oh, no. Um, You can comment on my blog or you can go into any of the Facebook game design forums and start talking about theme and I'll probably show up. 
but uh, I'm not on any of the like, you can follow me on social media, social medias. So I, I have been a little tricky to track down historically, but I know you can do it because other people have. <laughs> That's fine. All right. So ship <laughs> with two P's, like her last name, Board Games is her blog. So find her on her blog. And then I'm your host, Danielle Reynolds. And if you're looking to find me on social media, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter under the username Token Gamer. And that's G-A-Y-M-E-R. Thanks again, Sarah, for being on the show. This was fun. Yeah, this was great. Thank you for joining Danielle for another episode of Game Design Unboxed, inspiration to publication. If you'd like to hear more great gaming podcasts, check out nodirectionpodcast.com. Join us next time.